I invite you this evening to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21. And last week we began to look at this section of Exodus, which is called the Book of the Covenant. And this Book of the Covenant contains many laws that specifically apply to Israelite society and the way that they were to live their lives and conduct themselves before God and in their relationships with other people. As we read through some of these laws, for us in 2018 America, some of these laws seem quite odd to us, and they seem from another time and another place, and indeed they are. But that doesn't mean that we can't learn from them. And that doesn't mean that there aren't many things in these laws that apply very much to our, the way that we relate to one another today and the way that we relate to our God. In fact, I think we'll see tonight in the laws that we're looking at that, in fact, many of the laws of our society in, that are on the books in our country, in our states, are actually built on some of these principles that are found in Exodus chapter 21. Laws regarding personal injury laws regarding killing and murder, laws that that really govern the way in which we should care for one another and treat one another's personhood and their property. And so I think there's much that we can learn from this in in the way that that we show love to one another. And, And really that's what the law is all about, isn't it? I mean, when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest command of the law? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And both of those commands come straight out of the Old Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And love your neighbor as yourself comes right out of Leviticus 19. And so these are two ways of framing all of the law. To love your God, to love your neighbor. And the commands that we're looking at this evening, I think specifically deal with how we show love to our neighbor. And in many ways, these laws are specific applications of the broader principles contained in the Ten Commandments. I think last week I mentioned that one of the types of laws that's found in this Book of the Covenant are uh, case laws, or sometimes called casuistic laws. In other words, case laws are, they apply to specific scenarios, specific situations, and they often begin with, if someone does this, or, or if this happens, then, then here is how you are to handle this particular situation. And as I was thinking about this passage, my mind went back to Exodus chapter 18. In Exodus chapter 18, it is when uh, Moses is wearing himself out, listening to all of the cases that people are bringing to him. And in Exodus 18... His father-in-law, Jethro, says, this isn't good. This isn't wise what you're doing. And, and Jethro gives some very helpful advice to Moses and says, what you need to do is you need to find some reliable people, some faithful men, uh, have them serve as judges over tens and fifties and hundreds. And then the difficult cases they can bring to you and you can hear those. And in some of these laws that we're going to look at tonight, especially ones that seem to be very specific to very certain situations, it almost seems like these laws uh, flowed out of and maybe were recorded down as a result of some of those cases 
that Moses himself heard, difficult situations that were brought to him that he had to decide. And so instead of having to decide them over and over again, he wrote them down. And these become guidelines for ways in which other situations could be governed that are similar. And so many of these laws that we're looking at tonight can be traced back to the fifth command, which is to honor your father and mother. The sixth command, which is you shall not kill, you shall not murder. And the eighth command, you shall not steal, take that which is your neighbor's. I think most of the laws that we'll see tonight flow out of those three broader commands that we find in the Ten Commandments. And so I'm going to read this passage. It's a little bit of a longer passage. We're going to begin in Exodus 21, verse 12, and we're going to run through verse 36 at the end of the chapter. Anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. However, if it is not done intentionally, but God lets it happen, they are to flee to a place I will designate. But if anyone schemes and kills someone deliberately, that person is to be taken from my altar and put to death. Anyone who attacks their father or mother is to be put to death. Anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. Anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. If people quarrel and one person hits another with a stone or with their fist, and the victim does not die but is confined to bed, the one who struck the blow will not be held liable if the other can get up and walk around outside with the staff. However, the guilty party must pay the injured person for any loss of time and see that the victim is completely healed. Anyone who beats their male or female slave with a rod must be punished if the slave dies as a direct result. But they're not to be punished if the slave recovers after a day or two since the slave is their property. If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you're to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. An owner who hits a male or female slave in the eye and destroys it must let the slave go free to compensate for the eye. And an owner who knocks out the tooth of a male or female slave must let the slave go free to compensate for the tooth. If a bull gores a man or woman to death, the bull is to be stoned to death, and its meat must not be eaten. But the owner of the bull will not be held responsible. If, however, the bull has had the habit of goring, and the owner has been warned, but has not kept it penned up, and it kills a man or woman, the bull is to be stoned, and its owner also is to be put to death. However, if payment is demanded, the owner may redeem his life by the payment of whatever is demanded. This law also applies if the bull gores a son or daughter. If the bull gores a male or female slave, the owner must pay 30 shekels of silver to the master of the slave, and the bull is to be stoned to death. If anyone uncovers a pit or digs one and fails to cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, 
the one who opened the pit must pay the owner for the loss and take the dead animal in exchange. If anyone's bull injures someone else's bull and it dies, the two parties are to sell the live one and divide both the money and the dead animal equally. However, if it was known that the bull had the habit of goring, yet the owner did not keep it penned up, the owner must pay animal for animal and take the dead animal in exchange. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Lord, we come before your word tonight, and we ask that you would help us to, with open hearts and open minds, to learn and to take to heart what these ancient words have to teach us tonight. Lord, bless this time. May your spirit uh, take these words, apply them to our lives, and show us how we can love our neighbor as ourselves better than we have before. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. The way I've chosen to divide this message up is in verse 12 through verse number 27. I think what we see is cases in which one person harms another person directly. So one person harming another person directly. And in all of these situations, it is assumed that that someone is being hurt unjustly or an innocent person is being hurt, killed or injured. And so this is these are laws that deal with one person killing or injuring another human being. And what these laws teach us is that it is morally evil to kill or to hurt, to harm or to injure another human being. It is morally evil to directly hurt or injure or kill another human being. And so what we see in verses 12 through 14, we see certain violent acts that deserve the death penalty. And in verses 12 through 14, we see specifically murder. Murder. Verse 12 says, anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. And that is almost precisely the way that it describes what Cain did to Abel in Genesis chapter 4. He took him out into the field and he struck him and he slew him and he killed him. And Cain became the first murderer. And this is a specific application of the law against killing in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. But there is a scenario in which the person is not to be put to death. In other words, in a scenario in which the death penalty is not to be applied, and that is in the situation of an accidental death, an accidental killing. So it says in verse 13, but if it is not done intentionally... So there's no malice, there's no aforethought, there's no intention, but God lets it happen. It's an interesting way of phrasing it. And essentially what this is saying is that this is accidental and it falls underneath the providence of God. So it is a part of the providence, the the overall sovereignty of God, that this is an event that has happened, but one person did not intend it to happen to another. It's accidental. And in that case, God provided cities of refuge for the the person who had killed someone accidentally. That person could flee to a city of refuge and they could go into that city of refuge and they would be protected from the avenger of blood. In the Old Testament, the avenger of blood was usually a designated family member 
who was designated to, to seek out the justice for a wrongful killing, a wrongful death. And so this person who had accidentally killed someone could go to a city of refuge and he could find refuge inside that city, at least until the judges and witnesses could be called and they could further decide what really happened. And if it was found out, even if he went to a city of refuge, if it was found out that this was murder, that this was intentional, he had planned this, as verse 14 says, if someone schemes to kill someone deliberately, that person is to be taken from my altar and put to death. The language there, taken from the altar, comes from other places in Scripture where it designates that a person could flee to the sanctuary of God, could flee to the altar and literally take hold of the horns of the altar as essentially as an act of pleading for mercy and finding a place of security at the altar of God. But what verse 14 is saying is, if someone intentionally killed somebody, if they're guilty of murder, then there is no place of refuge for that person. There's, there's no place of refuge for that person inside a city of refuge. That city is to deliver him up to be put to death. Even if he has sought refuge at the altar of God for protection, if he is guilty of murder, he is to be brought out and put to death. Why is this? It's because God highly values human life. God highly values human life. And Genesis 9 teaches us that human life is valuable because every human life is made in the image of God. And Genesis chapter 9 establishes the criteria for the death penalty in cases of murder. If one human being sheds the blood of another innocent human being, that guilty party is to be put to death. Why? Because he has taken, he has snuffed out a life that was made in the image of God. And now, I know that the Pope has gained a lot of notoriety lately for saying that the death penalty is immoral. And yet, the Bible says that a person who has committed murder is to be put to death. Why is that? Why is the death penalty not immoral? Well, because what you're doing in the death penalty is you're showing how valuable life is. And, you, and there might be some who would say, how does that fit? How does that show how valuable life is if you are taking the life of another human being? Well, what you're showing is, is that the innocent human life was infinitely valuable. And it is worthy of a just and equivalent punishment. And so when you don't enact the death penalty, then what you're saying is that innocent human life didn't really matter that much. And it was not of sufficient crime for an equivalent punishment to be given. And so when you don't do the death penalty, you're devaluing innocent human life. And all human life is made in the image of God and it is to be protected. And so to raise the seriousness of murder, God established the death penalty to show how serious of a crime this is. And so there are certain violent acts that deserve the death penalty. And one of those is murder. 
Amazingly enough, another one is disrespecting or even attacking or even disrespecting one's parents. If you look in verse 15 and verse 17, it says, anyone who attacks their father or mother is to be put to death. Now, the, the verb there, attack, it, it depends on how it's taken. It's kind of open to different possibilities. One possibility is that the attack leads all the way to murder. Well, obviously, if someone kills their parents, then they fall under verse 12. Anyone who strikes a fatal blow is to be put to death. And so, to me, in my view, anyone who attacks, it's even a little bit broader than that. Broader than just killing, but could include also uh, just violent attack, personal injury, beating up a parent, perhaps, attacking them violently. They're to be put to death. Verse 17, anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. And the word that's used there of cursing is actually a little bit broader term that means to dishonor, to bring disrespect on one's father or mother. What does that show? It shows that when God said in the fifth command, honor your father and mother, that he was very serious, wasn't he? He was very serious. And it is a testament to the decline of our culture in that there is a great tolerance for disrespect toward parents and authorities. Some of the commentaries that I read suggested that the fifth command, honor your father and mother, Sometimes we associate that with the later commands that have to do with our relationships to one another. But some of the commentaries suggested that the Ten Commandments are better understood as divided equally in half. And that the fifth command, to honor father and mother, is actually an extension of our love and worship and respect for God. Because God has designated these authorities in our lives. And so to dishonor father and mother is to dishonor God himself who established those authorities in our lives. And really we should not be surprised that this disrespect of father and mother carries the death penalty. Because think about the other Ten Commandments. Worship God and God alone. What's the penalty in the Old Testament for worshiping false gods? The death penalty. What's the punishment in the Old Testament for setting up graven images and idols? It's the death penalty. What's the punishment for taking the name of the Lord God in vain and dishonoring the name of the Lord? It's the death penalty. What is the penalty in the Old Testament for breaking the Sabbath day? It was the death penalty. Somebody went out and gathered sticks on the Sabbath day and Moses ruled that he was to be put to death. The fifth command. Honor your father and mother. If that is broken, then what is the penalty? It should not surprise us that it is the death penalty. That's how serious God takes this command. The sixth command, do not kill. What's the penalty? It's the death penalty. Seventh command, do not commit adultery. What is the penalty? It's the death penalty. Really, it's not until you get till the eighth command, do not steal, that the, that the penalties begin to decrease. 
and with stealing, you are required to pay back with extra to bring back to the person's, to his full, what he had before and more as restitution for what you had taken. The ninth command, bearing false witness against a neighbor, there was the potential for that to carry the death penalty. If you lied in a case about murder and it was found out that you lied in a case about murder, then you were given the death penalty. And so almost all of the Ten Commandments carry the death penalty for, for breaking them. That's how serious God takes his appointment of father and mother as his designated representatives of his authority in our lives, in our families. And we also see in verse number 16, another case in which the death penalty was applied, kidnapping. Now, when we think of kidnapping, we might think of someone taking someone's son or daughter, maybe a famous person, a rich person, kidnapping them, holding them for ransom, or wanting some kind of demand. Typically speaking, in the ancient world, kidnapping was for one purpose, and that was for slavery. And so you would kidnap a person, you would take a person against their will, and you would enslave them. And the Bible, across the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, condemns that form of enslavement. And that's important for us to understand, because sometimes it is said that the Bible is okay with slavery. Well, we need to qualify that. We need to, we need to be very clear about what, what the Bible teaches. And the Bible is never okay with the type of slavery that we saw in Britain and in early American history, in which Arabs would sell Africans to Europeans as slaves. Arabs would kidnap Africans, would sell them as slaves to Europeans, and then they would be enslaved as for the rest of their lives. The Bible in both the Old Testament and the New Testament condemns man-stealing, kidnapping for enslavement, and the penalty for it was death. We also see in this passage that the excessive beating of a slave could result in death. In verse number 20 and 21, anyone who beats their male or female slave with a rod must be punished if the slave dies as a direct result. Now, it's kind of generically spoken there to be punished, but given the context, it's highly likely that the meaning of that is to be put to death. In fact, the Hebrew phrase there, that person's blood shall be avenged is typically spoken of when the death penalty is implied. And so even a slave who is, who is killed as a result of punishment, the owner is to be put to death. Because why? All human life is valuable. And this is where the Hebrew Bible takes the ethic of the ancient world as, and it raises it to a new level. Because typically in the ancient world, slaves were nothing and they were just property, and if you killed one, oh well, it didn't really matter. But here, this is saying that if a slave dies, the owner is to be punished, perhaps up to the death penalty. So that is showing, it's taking the ethic of the ancient world, and it's raising it to a higher level, showing that all human life is valuable. And so certain crimes carried the death penalty there's a special case in verses 22 to 25. Look at this one. 
this one I think is very relevant to our times and to a very serious cultural issue in our country. But verses 22 through 25 says, if, if two men are fighting, so if people are fighting, two men, and they hit a pregnant woman, and it's assumed that it wasn't necessarily intentional that they hit a pregnant woman, but their foolishness, their anger, their brawling got carried away such that they hit a pregnant woman who was perhaps a bystander or perhaps she was trying to intervene in maybe for her husband and help him. Either way, if she is hit in the process and as a result of being hit, she goes into premature labor and she gives birth, but there is no serious injury. The offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. So there could be a penalty applied even if the woman gave birth prematurely. That was even if the child lived and survived, there could be a fine given as determined by the husband in cooperation with the courts. But if there is serious injury, serious injury to whom? Well, the text is kind of open-ended. But the implication is that it could be serious injury to the mother of the child or serious injury to the young child. If the young child, if, if premature labor happens and the child dies as a result, then the Bible says there should be life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. In other words, there's a very strong case that could be made in Exodus 21 that the infant life, even unborn infant life, is human life made in the image of God and is a human person. And therefore, the killing of that unborn baby deserves an equivalent punishment. Eye for eye, life for life, tooth for tooth. Now, this case doesn't specifically talk about abortion where a mother chooses to terminate her pregnancy purposefully. But the, the implication here is very strong that even unborn human life is valuable and is to be treasured. And so those who would engage in this activity and accidentally, even accidentally, through their, through their negligence and through their, their brawling, they bring about this, this early premature delivery and perhaps even the death of the young child, they are responsible for that. And by the way, we have laws on our books today that are actually built on this principle. Almost every state has laws on the books. Currently, right now, laws on the books that if, if someone, like say in a car accident, perhaps a drunk driver, a drunk driver hits another car, that other car had a pregnant mother in it, and that pregnant mother goes into premature labor or she miscarries her baby, then that is manslaughter. According to law in many, many states in our country. That's built on this principle. The killing of an unborn child is 
manslaughter and carries a very severe penalty. And so even our own jurisprudence system acknowledges the, the value and the specialness of human life inside the womb. And yet we're very, very inconsistent on that, aren't we? And that we'll see that value of human life on one hand, but then we, we will allow for a mother to end that human life on the other hand. It's very inconsistent. But yet many of our laws are built on this principle that human life in the womb is very valuable. What about other kinds of injuries? We see in this passage also other kinds of injuries where if someone is injured, then they are to be compensated for that injury. For example, in the case of a slave in verses 26 and 27, if uh, the owner of a slave in, in the punishment of his slave, he injures him, that slave is to go free because of that injury. And so there is to be compensation. And it seems like the way this text reads, it goes from higher level punishments to lower level punishments. From death penalty to other lesser fines, depending on what the crime was. Now, I want to look at the last part of the passage in verses 28 through 36. Because what we see in verses 28 through 36 is more indirect killing or injury through what I would call negligence. Whereas in verses 13 through 27, we see more human-to-human action where one person does something directly to another person. In verses 28 through 36, it's more an animal or the property of a person who ends up causing injury or harm to another person or animal. So it's more indirect and therefore is more on the realm of negligence instead of direct action. So, for example, notice in verse 28, it says, if a bull gores a man or a woman to death, the bull is to be stoned to death, and its meat must not be eaten. But the owner of the bull will not be held responsible. There is a case in which it was an accident. It was an accident. It was unforeseen. This bull had never done this before. This was, this was not something that could have been anticipated. But what if a situation in which a bull had done this before and a bull was shown to be aggressive and, and had hurt people before and the owner did not take appropriate measures to protect people from that bull, if that bull gets out again and that bull hurts other people, perhaps even kills someone, not only is the bull to be put to death, but the owner of the bull is to be put to death. We say well, the, the owner didn't directly kill that other person, yes, but through gross criminal negligence, he did not take proper responsibility to keep his animal from killing that person. And in Old Testament law, he was guilty as if he had murdered the person directly. Now, Let's take that and apply that to a modern situation. We don't have bulls, in generally speaking. I mean, we, we have some around here. We have, we have some cows. We have some bulls around here. But probably more often than not, situations like this in which you hear are wild dogs. Dogs who attack another person. Dogs who are not chained up, fenced up and they cause harm to another person. 
what if what if that dog had been shown to to have that tendency and that dog is allowed out again and it hurt, seriously hurts someone or kills someone according to old testament law not just the dog is responsible the owner is responsible it's a very serious thing isn't it same thing we see a little bit down the page in verse 33 where it says, if, if anyone uncovers a pit or digs one and fails to cover it and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the one who opened the pit must pay the owner for the loss and take the dead animal in exchange. In other words, negligence. So you, you do an action, but then through your own negligence, you allow something to happen that causes harm to either another person or to someone's property. You're responsible for that through your negligence. And so there is a concern in this passage for the love of neighbor and that whether directly or indirectly, we're to show love and concern for our neighbor. And we are to make sure that that our neighbor's lives are protected, that their health and their well-being is protected, and that their personal property is protected. That's just basic love of neighbor. And so this passage is really about love for one's neighbor, and it requires us valuing the life, the personal well-being, and the property of our neighbor. That's just Christian love. Just a few few principles that I think that we can draw from this. One, a couple of them I've already alluded to. One of them is all human life is precious. All human life is precious. From the youngest unborn child and the lowest class slave to the wealthy nobleman and privileged royalty, all human life is precious. We also see in this passage that all punishment must be in accordance with the crime. So punishments need to fit the crime that was done. Life for life, tooth for tooth, eye for eye. That's a principle of lex talionis, and that is that the punishment needs to match and be equivalent to the crime. Now, punishments can be either too severe or too lenient, right? In the ancient world, it was often that punishments tended to be too severe. And so the principle of lex talionis brought the, 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 uh, the desire for vengeance and brought that down and sought to make the punishments equivalent with the crime that was committed. In our current society, seems like we have the opposite problem, and that punishments are, generally speaking, too lenient. And the punishments that are given do not fit the seriousness of the crime. Either one is out of balance, and either one tends toward chaos in a society. Another thing that this passage teaches us is that we should respect the personal property of our neighbors and we need to provide restitution for the damage to our our neighbor's property when we've been negligent. This passage teaches us the value of, of and the dignity of our parents and that disrespect, dishonoring our parents is very serious in the eyes of God. God's people should embrace an ethic of valuing human life and valuing one another's property. And we should do that in such a way that we are known for this even above the rest of the culture around us. 
And I see this in the idea that, that these laws often raise the bar of ethics in the ancient world. And so in the way that we value one another, the way that we love one another, the way that we honor one another's property, we should be even better and provide an example in this above the rest of society. We need to take appropriate care so that other people's lives are not endangered. That's the basic fundamental act of Christian love, isn't it? To make sure that other people's lives are protected and that their well-being is cared for and that their property is honored and respected. And so as Christians, may we love our neighbors in this way. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father God, you have blessed us in so many ways. You have given us family. You've given us life. You've given us our possessions. Lord, may we remember that all of these things are blessings, are gifts from you. And may that motivate us then to show love and concern for the life, the well-being, the families, the property of our neighbors and those around us. Lord, may we be your shining lights in this world. May people see how your children live. And may that be a great testimony to the truth of the gospel. May our lives and our actions adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ and make it attractive in the eyes of the world. Lord, let us be your shining lights on a hill. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.